No, 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 no. Let me tell you something. He's a loser. He's a huge, huge loser. Mr. Trump? I mean, can you believe Ted Cruz endorsed me? Do you see that sad little video of him making calls for me? Talk about a pussy that I'd love to grab by the throat. Mr. The Trump, throat. your microphone is still on. What? It is? And I would like to tell Ted Cruz in all sincerity, I stand by with that, what I said, you're a huge loser. And also, live from New York, it's Saturday night. It's Saturday Night Live. Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. Tonight we'll be discussing Season 42, Episode 2 of Saturday Night Live with host Lin-Manuel Miranda and musical guest 21 Pilots. I'm John Murray, and joining me this week is Steve Finn. Steve is a comedy aficionado, award-winning improv performer, and the host of Transparency on CHMR 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at TransparencyCHMR. And you can connect with us at SNLAfterParty.FM. All right, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen... So they officially dropped the next two hosts and musical guests. I'd heard rumors that they were going to do a run of four in the lead up to the election, but that's now confirmed. We've got Emily Blunt, Tom Hanks as the next two hosts and uh, friends of the show, Bruno Mars and Lady Gaga backing them up as musical guests. It's pretty stacked. Yeah. It's going to be a fun month and I'm really glad to be getting four episodes consecutively right off the bat. Uh, is that not a usual thing. It doesn't seem like it. No, normally they do uh, runs of three episodes or two episodes, but it just seems like with the short window of time before the election, there's added reason to try and squeeze in as many episodes as possible. Cause you got Alec Baldwin, you've got Trump hysteria and all of the potential comedy that goes along with that. So their ability to probably get advertisers in the door and really make the most of this window of time. Uh, I think that's obviously driving them to want to front load the season as much as possible. Right. I mean, it's a great boot camp for these seven new writers <laughs> and the featured performers too. They're getting lots of screen time. It's just, I'm, I've been super pumped. Everything I've been seeing so far this season is just making me giddy. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Uh, the other thing that has been coming up on the SNL radar is people have been looking at the actual timing of the last couple episodes and they're starting to wonder where is this 30% reduced ads that we were promised last year and why doesn't it seem like the show has significantly more content when that's kind of what we thought was going to be happening from day one season 42. Right. Do you have an angle on this? What's, what's your thoughts on it? Well, the fact of the matter is you know, it's true we are getting more airtime. People have done the math and it's amounting to a few minutes of extra time with sketches and, right. and what have you during the show. I don't think the math is working out that it's a, a full 30% reduction. But, you know, maybe that's something they're ramping into, especially with uh, ratings going to be a bit higher in the beginning of the season. Yeah, well, if there was ever an opportunity to try and keep as much potential ad time in the show, it's going to be this pre-election block of four. This is when they're probably going to be able to command the most money because the ratings are going to be high. There is excitement around Alec Baldwin coming in for Trump. So they've got 
they've just got a lot of cards to play right now to generate ad revenue. So it would probably make sense that if they are going to do that full 30% reduction, maybe they're just holding off until the season sort of plateaus and uh, they'll probably start bringing in those sponsored pods and uh, reducing the ad blocks later in the season. But let's get off that jag. Let's get into the episode. Let's do it. Yeah. So cold open, the VP debate happened. So obviously we were expecting that they were going to hit that. But the the big controversy that they hit on in the cold open is Trump's um, off the record remarks about. <coughs> so that is what they had to work with, or that's what they chose to work with. Do you feel that this hell stew of controversy uh, was able to be distilled down into a fun cold open or, you know, just where, where do you think we landed on this one? Distilled is not the word to use because I felt this was a highly diluted cold opening with perhaps too many elements going on. Okay. It was nice to see Mikey Day playing such a, uh, an important role as Tim Kaine. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were expecting to see a, a repertory player in that role. Sure. And it feels like they're kind of skipping that part with him since he has so much history with the show. But it seems like, you know, they wanted to reference it, but not do a whole sketch about it. Especially not when you've got all this comedy gold that's just falling out of Donald Trump's face every single day. I just thought it was worth mentioning that they winked, like Melissa Villasenor was able to kind of wink at the camera a little bit, introduce herself formally as a new cast member, kind of out of character on screen. And then the other players in the scene were able to kind of riff on that and just give her a little moment. And I just thought that was really fun. It wasn't like super duper funny, but I just thought it was charming. And she just must've been giddy that she's got a close up in a scene. Like she has dialogue. She has a chance to actually be a new character. And it's even self-referential yeah. on top of all that. So I would, I would be stoked if I were her for sure. Yeah. So it was a fun moment for her and I'm glad that they gave it to her because the debate was not going to be the focus of the sketch. And she was basically going to be shuffled out of the sketch within like 15 seconds. Yeah. It was nice that she just got a moment there. So, you know, we've gotten all the meta stuff out of the way. The actual sketch though, was it funny? I thought it was funny. I, I felt there were moments with, with Alec Baldwin's impression of Trump where he was kind of struggling to find where to put those nuances mm-hmm. that he's he's decided on for his impression. Sure. It seemed like there was a few last minute rewrites. I felt like he was going in blind for some of the lines he had. Oh, I think absolutely he was because this whole controversy was less than 24 hours old, right? So yeah. I'm sure the, I don't have to guess there's, <laughs> there's been lots of um, stuff flooding through Twitter about the frantic writing sessions right up till the dress rehearsal yesterday. Yeah. So yeah, we know that they were trying to jump on the most current Trump material that they could get into the show. For sure. Yeah. But did that drag down the sketch or did it still hold together? It was, it dragged it down. There's a couple of things dragging it down. I thought Cecily's performance could have been fine tuned. And this could also be, you know, the fact that it's such a current occurrence, but it really shows uh, that it was rushed and you can't blame them for it. I'm just happy that they were able to address it. Right. Yeah. We would have been disappointed if the cold open hadn't featured this material. So we have to cut them some slack that there's only so much you can do to tighten up a cold open when you're literally still scrambling to get the cue cards written 10 minutes before you go on. Mm -hmm. That's true. And Kate was pretty, uh, pretty wonderful as well as always. Yep. Uh, I liked 
how she couldn't keep a straight face when she was trying to emote how offended she was for all women everywhere. And that's really reflective of how disingenuous she comes off a lot of the time. Yeah, it's fun how Kate is able to take that and weave that through her performance, but at the same time, she's also winking at the camera and she's just bubbling over with mirth because of her good fortune of having all of this, (laughs) you know, Trump implosion stuff happening at the exact right time. So you've got her trying to hold it together, trying to be stately and professional, but she... (laughs) She can't do it. She has to, you know, pop the cork and and take a swig because this is just too delicious to to pass up. Kate's performance, I there, I have nothing bad to say about it. When she gets a little, uh, like, tries to get more youthful and speak to the remaining female Trump voters, that's all gold. Uh, everything she did was, as far as I was concerned, flawless. Sketch overall just needed one more rewrite. Yeah, one more. I think you're right. Yeah. Now getting into the show proper. Lynn manuel Miranda, this guy is a fantastic performer. Obviously, Broadway knows it. <laughs> you know, like uh, As far as New York's concerned, this is their golden boy right now. But this is, for most of the rest of the country, one of their first introductions to him and really what he can bring. And he did not squander his opportunity on the show, as the monologue, I think, proves. <laughs> he didn't give away his shot, no. Yeah. Uh, so what, what did you think? How did this play? First of all, you can just tell that Lin-Manuel, uh, it's been a very, very, very long time since we've had a host this happy to yes. be doing the show. <laughs> yeah, he has an infectious grin. You know that he's lapping this up. Right. And from seeing his appearances on Tonight Show leading up to it, him talking about his you know super fandom, you know, to see him up there and to see like his wide-eyed expression and just the effortless amount of energy he could put into this right to this monologue, our first sight of him on the show. It was infectious. You know, after the first 30 seconds of him starting to rap, I was saying to myself, the whole, the rest of the show could be garbage and I'd still be satisfied with, yep. with what I saw. He already made the evening. Yeah. Which was great. And he, he probably worked with a writer, but I'd say a lot of the references and the things he was talking about, like Don Pardo saying Lorraine Newman. Yeah. They felt like personal memories, yeah. personal things that he was, uh, he's attached to with, with the show. Yeah. I picked up on the same thing. I actually made a, a note because when that lyric dropped, that's when I was sold that, okay, this guy wrote his own monologue, right? That's, that's the yeah. first thing that I think is a takeaway other than maybe the introductory jokes where maybe he had a staff writer, helping him a bit when he got into the rap. I think that's a hundred percent him. And because he could dig deep on the SNL references, it, it does show that this is not just a gig for him. This is, uh, this was a special moment. And like you said, he's not throwing away his shot. He, he took that monologue for all it's worth. And I don't know, like Fred Armisen's monologue was really, really good last season finale, but it's just so rare that a, um, a guest host, especially a first time guest host can come out with the amount of poise and confidence and control that he had and just execute flawlessly. Like there was not a missed beat. There was not a misstep, his blocking, uh, his timing, uh, getting himself, uh, set against the dancers at the right moment to come back on stage, his interchange with Lauren Michaels, everything about it played beyond anything you should expect from a rushed together monologue on Saturday Night Live. So yeah, I, I don't know how to say anything nicer about it other than 
I think this was just absolutely the best thing that he could have brought to the show. And I think it solidified him as uh, a host to be reckoned with. Yeah. It's kind of a shame that he's not a movie star where he's going to have a movie to hawk every summer because he's someone that should be back on the show every year. But like he said, I'm probably going to be off writing a musical for the next seven years. So who knows if I'll ever be the flavor of the week again, but geez, man, (laughs) the guy is a performer, a real performer. Absolutely. And uh, one more point on the monologue. Mm -hmm. This is our, I believe this is our first sighting of the Lincoln llama (laughs) And Ziegfeld Folly Girls. But not the llama. Oh, the llama was there. Was he? On my second viewing, I saw the llama. Okay, because I watched it twice and I couldn't spot the llama. If if it was there, great. Obviously, <laughs> the show is mining its history yet again, and it works every time for those astute super fans that like to pick out those minute little Easter eggs. Yeah. Uh, let's move on. Our first sketch is a uh, live in-house sketch, Campfire Songs. What's your takeaway? Overall, I don't think it was a successful sketch. It felt like it was missing something. The sketch wasn't much more than two people being weird. I don't know. I just don't feel it was taken anywhere that was that interesting. Yeah, I was surprised that this is what they led with. After such a stunning monologue and even a fun cold open, it just didn't seem to come together right. It just didn't seem to land. The aspect of it where the weird couple brother and sister couple slowly wins over the guy. I don't think that was properly established. It wasn't either. They didn't know how to end the sketch. So they just tried to flip it there at the end, or the intention was to slowly show through the sketch that he was being won over. (laughs) He was charmed by this couple that had no charm, (laughs) you know, nothing that anyone should ever latch onto and be enamored by. He was slowly being enamored. But because that didn't play or didn't register, the only real takeaway was how weird this couple was. And that joke is funny the first time, but it doesn't support three minutes of comedy. Yeah. Uh, But then we move on to Crucible cast party. So our first pre-tape of the night. Uh, This very much feels like it's in the vein of a lot of the other like girl power music videos that they've done. But with a new twist, there's a different storyline here. The basic gimmick being that these are all like middle school or or like juniors in high school or whatever. And they're right at that point in life where they're trying to kind of rebel and explore and push boundaries. But it's kind of cute to see how innocent and unexperienced they all are. You know, they all think they're badasses, but really like Kate McKinnon doesn't know how to inhale a cigarette. Yeah, Two kids uh, in a closet can't figure out how to put the moves on each other. Like the, the joke is this is supposed to be like the after party to end all after parties, but they got to shut it down at 1145 and keep the lights on. And you know, like the parents are there watching. It's a very fun concept. Do you feel like doing it as a music video and just the way that they produced it? Do you felt that that did justice to the concept? Do you think it actually kind of held together? Oh, 100%. And I'm speaking as a guy who came out of high school with a lot of theater (laughs) experience. Sure. I I was in all the musicals and stuff. You know that world. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's really funny because, you know, the art crowd, they're not usually the most confident people, but there's a, a certain quality in the air after there's a successful performance. Everyone's very proud of themselves and they become much more confident. And you could see... You could see this kind of behavior coming out. 
Yeah, they're riding high. They're riding high and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm the best. <laughs> Even though, you know, they might still have their braces on like Lin-Manuel. And <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing that that's the kind of experience the writers were drawing from. It was very relatable. Even people that maybe didn't come up through the theater tech side of, of high school, just the the awkwardness of wanting to spread your wings and fly, but having no life experience to pull on and just the weird social situations that result from that. These lame supervised parties where the riskiest thing that could happen is a, a group shoulder massage. <laughs> <laughs> It just, it, it rang very true and, you know, nobody who uh, went through adolescence can't find something in that sketch to relate to. So it was a fun concept to mine and they did pull out a lot of good moments to weave into it. Yeah. Okay. So moving on, Dale Swee's substitute teacher. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny because this guy, you know, he, before he showed up, he probably thought this was all going to go great. Everybody was going to fall in love with him. Right. He was going to reach these kids. I heard that exact same line in Funny People by Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. Uh, he played a, an actor in a show where there's this type of character exists. And he does that exact same, the best rap guy was Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So was that derivative? I don't know if that's a thing. Well, I think it was intentionally drawn upon because it's such a cliche, because that is such a, uh, an obvious go-to thing that a, uh, idealistic fresh teacher would try and use to win over the students. Yeah. They had to use it. That had to be the opening joke because that sets the tone. That's the thing that makes abundantly clear what this teacher's angle is and what the student's angle is. So I thought this was one of the smarter concepts of the night, and I thought it was really well executed. Mm-hmm. And Melissa Villasenor got some lines. Yeah. I should point out, you know, people might think that she's putting on a voice, but in that particular sketch, that's her natural speaking voice. That's how she sounds. Yeah. When I was doing my homework before the season started and, and looked at some of her like audition material and other stuff that she's been on, it is funny to see her come out of her impression characters and then revert back to that mode <laughs> Yeah, because it is kind of jarring. You don't expect that that's what she's going to sound like. I hope it's not going to end up being a liability for, her because it doesn't have a lot of like performer presence. Like it doesn't ring out star when she's in an impression and turning it on she is great. I just, I don't know if that default mode is going to work well for her in situations where she's not in a particular character or impression. It's working for me. I find it oddly attractive. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I can't argue with that. There's uh, whatever, whatever works for you. Great. And I mean, that's if, if you happen to be in the majority on that, that's going to work great for her on the show. If she's testing well with males, uh, 19 to 39 or whatever the, the key demographic is great. Great. If she could just whisper sweet, nothings in my ear in that voice <laughs> all day, I'd be a happy man. So a day off with Kellyanne Conway, another pre-tape. See, this is what happens when unpresidential people run for president. <laughs> There's so much damage control that yep. you'd have to lose your mind to try and attempt to get the job done. Mm-hmm. There, there hasn't been this much denial coming from a person in the face of such obvious evidence since Shaggy said it wasn't him. <laughs> okay, I got I to gotta stop you. How long have you been working on that joke? 
I I wrote it down as soon as <laughs> as soon as I watched the sketch. All right, all right. Uh, point made. Like that's uh, that is exactly right. She's a spin doctor who she might be the greatest spin doctor in the world, but there is no spin doctor great enough to keep up with the unending string of controversy that Trump is just dropping daily. Yeah. It really must be exhausting. Yeah. So this was a, a smart way to frame that. And the nice thing is that they took a few little beats to show how annoyed the anchor is with having to constantly go back to these little mini controversies every like 30 seconds and how annoyed she is every time her phone rings. You can tell that this is not a a passion project for her. She is not on team Trump out of a genuine love for the guy and his policies. She's doing her job. And sometimes that means yeah. putting out fires on her day off. McKinnon brings all the energy in the world to it. It hit all of the fun little beats that you would expect her day to entail. And Trump is just this constant blight <laughs> on her ability to to enjoy life. It was fun. Quick, punchy, a new one to get in, a new one to get out. Yeah. And Alex Moffat's got some uh, pretty good uh, wig game going on here. Yeah. I was thinking Bruce Jenner there for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a good solid ending where she finally concedes and say, you know what? Nobody's buying this anyway. Yep. <laughs> Let's just say it. He, he sucks. Yeah. He's a jerk and don't vote for him. Yeah. And the, the anchor man is flabbergasted. Like he doesn't even know how to follow up with that. He's not expecting a, a spin doctor to actually go off script and give him what he's been digging for. Like this little back and forth dance that they have to do every 15 minutes that Trump tweets. He just knows how it plays out. So for her to then just give up, and cash out of the situation. That is a fun way to just flip it on its head a little bit, just so they have a way to exit. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Smart. Great. The first half of the show, you know, occasional missteps, but by the time we got to the musical performance, I was just grinning, just grinning. So let's talk about both musical performances. 21 pilots. Their first song is heathens. Their second song is ride. Now, I don't think this ever made it into a cast, but when you and I were, batting around who the musical guests were going to be. You were emphatically not thrilled about these guys being brought on the show. Um, having heard them on the radio, they've had uh, several singles out. And my main complaint was they all sound the same. Maybe I'm getting to the age where I don't get <laughs> new music anymore, but I, I just was, it was hard to relate to. And first performance of the night didn't really sell me. Mm-hmm. When they got into Ride, however, the drumming was much more intense yep. than the recording is. Okay. And made me realize they had a really, really unique and talented drummer who's like a cross between Travis Barker and uh, Stuart Copeland. Mm-hmm. So I was impressed by the technical uh, ability of the drummer and how that blended in with that style of music. Mm-hmm. And that's something I never was able to appreciate from listening to the more watered down, more simplified studio version. Sure. No, I think that's a, a very fair assessment. I was won over because you were so cold on it and because I didn't know them from Adam, I went into it assuming that I was going to be disappointed. And then when the second song had a more obvious uh, reggae feel to it, that to me was surprising and fresh. So I liked it. I thought Ride was the better of the two songs. I thought both of them were solid performers. I thought that the way that they staged it and the way that they 
executed those songs was very punchy and powerful. And I thought the drummer was solid. Hey guys, John here. Let's rap a little bit. Just us dudes about Roveco's kick-ass Super Bassomatic 76. Now I know what you're thinking. I don't need you nagging me about the overwhelming health benefits of a diet rich in liquid fish. That's what I've got a wife for. Am I right? Of course I am. Look, after a long day of backbreaking work, the last thing any of us want is to come home to a bunch of squawking about how we drink too much red meat and not nearly enough lean, healthy, raw liquid fish. Trust me, I know. But here's what else I know. I'm not as young as I used to be. I can't throw the old pigskin as far as I used to, and let's be honest, I am not firing on all cylinders in the bedroom. That's why I'm so glad that I got my hands on Roveco's Super Bassomatic 76. It makes it quick and easy to down as many pints of cool frothy fish as you can chug. And if you're married, there's absolutely no cleanup. Am I right? Of course I am. Now, let me tell you what you can expect when you start juicing raw fish. That receding hairline? Forget about it. Pulverized fish bone is scientifically proven to reverse hair loss. That 70-pound spare tire you've been carrying around your waist? Gone. The numerous parasites found in raw fish are proven to cause rapid dramatic weight loss preceding death. And consider your bedroom woes a thing of the past. When your lady friend gets a look at your svelte chiseled physique and full flowing lion's mane, she won't be able to resist your advances any more than she was able to with the pool boy last summer. So be a man and recapture the glory of your lost youth. Head over to Pier 25, New York, New York, and pick up your Super Bassomatic 76 today. And our thanks to Roveco for sponsoring this episode of the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. Okay, so moving on to Weekend Update. Uh, we've got another run of almost exclusive Trump jokes out of the gate. How do you feel uh, this week looking at Jost and Che and their back and forth? Do you feel that they're still keeping the bar high? I think they're keeping it high. They're maintaining uh, what they've accomplished as their benchmark, mm-hmm. which I think is great. I just love how comfortable Jost is now. He's not feeling any pressure at all to jump into right. the next bit of material. He lets things sit and, you know, kind of boil over with the crowd. Mm-hmm. And the dynamic that he has with Michael Che is perfect because in that moment of silence, Michael just make a, a, an aside comment that adds even more of a frill to the joke. There's a lot going on and you can really see that they've discussed all these points and, and tried to make it the best they can. And I think the best they can is really up there. Yep. I agree. Uh, last week, since it was the premiere, even the weekend update was pretty solid. It was a good showing for them. There was still a, just a bit of awkwardness where you could kind of tell that uh, they hadn't quite ramped up and found their, their groove. But this week I felt like everything felt a little bit tighter, a little bit more focused, just a little, uh, just a little cleaner in their back and forth. There wasn't, uh, there didn't seem to be any stumbling or any jokes that really fell flat. It just, everything felt very tight and it felt like they had kind of ramped up and they'd found their, their groove. Right. Uh, I may get a little bit more critical on our visitors to the desk. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Let's jump into that. Pete Davidson is going bald. Our first guest spot of the night. It was okay. It was, uh, you know, you could tell that it wasn't refined, that this was new material. Yeah. I felt like it was over before it was getting started. Maybe that's all you could get out of that topic. And I, I felt kind of the uh, logical connections <laughs> he was making and, and the analogies he had. 
they didn't really land for me. Right. I had very similar notions. It seems like it's not like maybe the standup that he had the first season where he was pulling from a set that he'd already really refined and fine tuned on stage. It seems like what he's coming up with now is kind of like his first draft standup. Mm-hmm. And just by the nature of Saturday Night Live, that's what actually gets on the air. And so kind of like you said, I noticed the the big thing that I was having trouble following was it did seem like there was a flaw in his logic or the point that he was trying to make about it reducing your sex drive, but him being okay with that, but still being like a ladies man or feeling like a ladies man. He was touching on some funny ideas, but I don't think he'd quite worked out in his head exactly how to marry them into a strong bit. Yeah, it wasn't articulated well. I could see what he's getting at because- Women are attracted to men who don't show any interest. Right. So that's what he was trying to do, I think. Yeah, you just needed a few more drafts to really tune that into something, uh, a more clear way to present those ideas than what they had. There you go. So we get an unexpected visit from Tina Fey and Jimmy Fallon as two undecided voters from Clifton Heights, Pennsylvania, we are introduced to Denise McDonough and Doreen Troiler. Now, I have feelings. What are your feelings? Yeah, it, it was it was a mess. Uh, I don't know how rehearsed it was or who wrote it. I doubt it was Tina. No, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say Tina wrote it. The Would reason you? being, yeah, she's from Upper Darby, PA. Oh, okay. I can see her mining all the little idiosyncrasies of the middle-aged women that she would have seen in her community growing up. And I can see that being very familiar territory for her to write some comedy around. And it had her voice. There was a rhythm or a style to it that sounded like typical Tina Fey. Yeah. I think she brought it to the table. I have a feeling Jimmy Fallon probably didn't do his homework and, you know, showed up a little unprepared. And I think he was probably the weak link in this. You got it. There were moments in there. There were some good jokes. It was not tight. It stayed a little too long. And as much as I love Tina Fey, this just wasn't the best thing they could bring forward. Very rarely am I disappointed by anything that Tina Fey does, but this one, I got to say, disappointed. But at the very least, we know it's not going to be a recurring thing by its very nature. It was only relevant because of the fact that Pennsylvania is a swing state. Yeah. All right, let's get off Weekend Update. We are in the back half of the show, The Music Man, Wells Fargo. Did you know what they were riffing on here? Uh, Yes, I did. And it was kind of a clever way of commenting on it. Do you feel that most people would have got the joke? Like, do you think that was a big enough news story about Wells Fargo, their overzealous salespeople fraudulently creating accounts to meet quotas and all the follow-up from that? Do you think that that stole enough headlines from Trump that anyone's thinking about that? Yeah. See, that's the thing, you know, with Trump just dominating the news, this is stuff that probably would be more discussed. And it's kind of what's not so great about all this media attention on the election. Yeah. You know, it's, it's almost like a footnote. Yeah. Did we laugh? I laughed more at not so much the, the material and the substance but I just love Kyle Mooney when he's <laughs> portraying a, a young person. Yeah, he can he can pull off such a charming lisp, eh? And yeah, and even Lynn Manuel's like, dude, you are just soaking <laughs> me right now. I love it when uh, I think it was eighty uh, says something to him that he takes offense to, and he's like, "Say it to my face, Biff." 
<laughs> but with it, but with his his charming little boy lisp, it had nothing to do with the thrust of the sketch. But it seems like anytime he comes on screen, they find a way for him to say something awkward that in no other way impacts the sketch, but just in the moment is a funny little beat. Uh, they did it earlier in the show with the uh, campfire songs. He asks uh, Lynn after he's done playing guitar for however many hours, he asks him, so do you actually play guitar? Like, <laughs> And then there was, uh, I think it was him. Remember in the uh, Fred Armisen finale, the guacamole incident? I can't Regine. think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Regine. Yeah. In that sketch, remember they open it up and I think it's A.D. Bryant that's telling like an anecdote and then she finishes and he's like, that didn't happen to her. It happened to her friend. You know, like, yeah, they're always giving him these little curves in the sketches. I wonder where that's coming from, because it always seems to be him that's delivering those little out of place moments that are always fun. Well, he's the type of performer that I think the writers have acknowledged that they can add mm. a little bit of punch into their scripts if they uh, just pass the ball to Kyle. Yeah. To just Kyle it up a bit. The reason I think this is because of what they do with Keenan. And there was, I forget mm-hmm. which writer it was who was interviewed, but they said, if you want to add just an extra laugh into your script, you just write in Keenan reacts. Yes. <laughs> and Keenan, uh, do what he do as you like to put it. <laughs> That's what Keenan does. And this is what Kyle does. So, yeah, you know what? You're probably right. I don't know one way or another, but because Kyle Mooney also, uh, he's pretty prolific. Like he generates ideas. He's not just a performer on the show. I just wonder if maybe, when they're doing the table reads, if maybe he's putting those things forward or if the writers are coming with it because they just know his sensibility and what he can pull off a la the Keenan scenario. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, next pre-tape Diego calls his mom <laughs> from North Dakota. Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on this? This is a slightly different kind of pre-tape than we typically get from SNL. Yeah. Personally, I lack the knowledge of that state to relate to it. Okay. I don't know how much you need to know about North Dakota because as they're laying it out, you just have to accept that, okay, well, these must be cliches about North Dakota or just middle America in general. And I, I think most of them rang true, like really heavy, creamy, dense orange food. (laughs) I walked away from it feeling surprisingly charmed and happy with it without really being able to hundred percent understand why. And so I've gone over it a couple of times trying to figure out what did I like so much about this? I don't know if it was the innocence of how Diego was telling the story of his experience, like (laughs) this wide-eyed visitor to this foreign culture and everything's magic to him. All these things are the, you know, the, the wonder of the experiences coming through. There was a, a really funny concept of someone thinking that spending time in North Dakota would have the, the magic of like what we would maybe do, like going overseas and seeing like a really rich culture with history and vibrancy, like the stories we would tell from that he's telling those same kind of anecdotes, but for North Dakota, (laughs) right. There was just a lot of little ideas that are there that they didn't fully explain. So you're just left trying to interpret what does Diego think is going on right now? You know, <laughs> you know, like they're watching the fireworks and Vanessa Bayer's there and he's clearly the one in the middle and she's off on the side and they seem to be having a very nice moment without Vanessa Bayer necessarily being pivotal to that. And so you just like, what, what's he stumbled into and uh, <laughs> is it almost uh, dangerous for him to be so innocent and wide-eyed <laughs> with this, with this guy that, 
you know, totes him around in the back of his truck. Yeah. Because I didn't understand everything they were presenting, it made it that much more interesting to just try and keep up with it. I'm looking forward to seeing what people might have to say about it. Yeah. Anyways, uh, moving on. Netflix behind the scenes, Stranger Things season two. My takeaway is there was some fun moments for people that have seen Stranger Things, but ultimately it's forgettable. And I don't think that it's the high point of the show. No, and I don't have to have watched the show to to see how lazy this was overall. Yeah. The whole, you know, black people are no nonsense and they wouldn't put up with any of this creepy stuff. Like that has been explored before. So it's not something that's fresh to me from my perspective. And I don't want to assume that it's the only perspective, you know, cause I'm a white guy. So, you know, I probably maybe have a lower threshold for racially oriented sketches than some, but check your privilege, man. Yeah, <laughs> sure. My feeling is great. Those are all true cliches that can be played up, but on SNL, we're getting a lot of that. <laughs> we are. At a certain point, a lot of this stuff just becomes a little stale. I think this might be an indication of that. At least there was some aspect of that when I was watching it. I was feeling like we probably just didn't need another dissection of the differences between black and white suburban culture. If it's just going to be the same points you're making that you've always been making, then I don't see why other than to say, Hey, we're acknowledging stranger things. Cause everybody likes that show. Right. That said, Sashir Zameda, she actually got to do something <laughs> in this sketch. You know, she got to play a real character and she does a good job of that boy. Like the, her take on it and the way that uh, the enthusiasm she brought to it felt very good. I do have a question for you since you've seen the show. Sure. Uh, Melissa Villasenor. As the mom? Yeah. Was she nailing it and whatever she was impersonating or? Yeah. She was impersonating Winona Ryder, who is the mom who everyone in the town thinks is crazy because she uh, has a wacky theory about her missing child Mm -hmm. uh, that, that involves Christmas lights. Oh, there was a, a, a little inflection that she put in her voice that made it feel shaky and scared and almost like too much coffee, not enough sleep. And I think that that perfectly encapsulated what Winona Ryder's performance was on the show. Just wily eyed, strung out, tired, frustrated, and and all of that came through. And she didn't play it up so much that it felt so cartoonish that it was maybe a little bit more heightened than the rest of the characters. It felt like she hit that just about perfect. Okay. We're going to see a Jay Farrow type of coming of age here with, Mm. you know, starting out with really good impressions and developing other skills as you get more experience with the show. I feel Jay really rounded himself out with his time on SNL. Sure. Yeah. And I I see uh, Miss Mantown doing uh, something similar. (laughs) You're clinging to that joke, eh? (laughs) It's it's going to be a running gag. All right. Yeah. Only time will tell, but, uh, so far so good. You know, we were coming into the season. She was the least predictable. I'm super happy to see her getting some screen time and not standing out as being awkward or too fresh to keep up with the season players. That bodes very well for her. Yeah, it does. Okay. Moving on Melania moments. It's back. We assumed it was going to be a reoccurring little drop in throughout the election cycle. Uh, what did you think of our second installment of Melania Moments? 
It was just on par with the, the next one. Yep. It was a funny joke. The payoff being that her spidey sense is tingling when she realizes that her replacement has been born. But then the fact that it's not about her, like getting rid of the replacement to keep her in Donald's good graces. She wants to disappear the replacement to save her from having to (laughs) be captured by Donald. Bit dark. Yeah. But I think that that's clever. That's a little bit smarter than that joke needed to be. (laughs) Yeah. All right, we are at our 10 to 1 sketch. A degree of valor, Pete Davidson's dying wish is for his commanding officer to do him a favor when he gets home. You know, it's not the most original (laughs) setup for a sketch. We've all heard that joke. Oh, you got to delete my porn when I die. Throw my phone in the river. (laughs) Throw my phone in the river. This is uh, hiding a a butt plug, if I may say that, on our Safer Work podcast. Well, if we can throw out, why not? (laughs) I like that it was in black and white. I liked the uh, the explosion effects. They were very convincing with the sand and dust and uh, little pebbles. Made very good use of the set and created a good World War II atmosphere. Yeah. I'm guessing that's the war they're trying to recreate there, right? I, I would assume so. Yeah, it's interesting with all the political stuff that they've had to mine, we haven't had a lot of potty humor the last couple episodes so far. So they snuck one in. They're, I don't think they're reinventing anything with this sketch, but as a fun little uh, little peek in on what really becomes important <laughs> when when the end is nigh, I thought that was fun. I thought it was it was a nice little uh, inversion of what we've seen in so many war movies, the, you know, the Saving Private Ryan's or whatever. Yeah. As he goes on, and it becomes obvious that he's not dying quick enough. <laughs> there's a little fun angle to it that at a certain point uh, the overwhelming desire to give this guy some comfort in his final moments gives way to just feeling imposed upon by him not dying quick enough right there was a fun little angle there that i enjoyed and then you know like most of the sketches tonight it figured out how to get out pretty quick so another win and that's our show so what is your high point or the best moment of the night Best moment of the night? Got to be that monologue, that rap. Yeah. As a hardcore SNL fan and hearing all those references to Days of Old, it was just a perfect blend of the relevance of the host mm-hmm. and the, uh, you know, the institution of, of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. So, so that's definitely my high moment. Once you've watched a few hundred episodes of SNL and you've seen the highs and lows of the monologue, you know, you've seen the really cheap phone it in, let's ask the audience kind of stuff, like the things that maybe they go back to that aren't really inspired. You see those kind of monologues and then occasionally, just occasionally, because they can't do it every week. You can't make every week's monologue just the greatest thing ever, but occasionally you see the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and it certainly is nice when you get surprised. Like this is a host that you didn't know too much about coming into it. And he just comes out with this fury and dominates the show as as capable as any of the players he's working against. Yeah. The monologue just kind of sums that all up. He proved himself and won you over in a matter of milliseconds with that monologue. So best overall sketch. Best overall sketch would probably be, I'm going to go with a day off. (laughs) Okay. We're in lockstep. 
So I think, uh, yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot of controversy on any of this. No split votes tonight. No, no, no. Pretty straightforward. MVP. MVP. I gave it to Alec Baldwin. Right. Last week. And this week, I think I'm going to continue my streak of not giving it to an actual cast member. Okay. I'm going to give it to the host. <sighs> You're stealing my thunder. <laughs> I'm going to give it to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Okay. Because... If I ever got to host Saturday Night Live, knock on wood, I think I would be just as ecstatic, if not more, than Lin-Manuel. So it it really touched me to see someone actually fulfill an actual goal they had in their career. Mm-hmm. You know, during his good nights, he said it was the best week of his life, and I nearly shed a tear yeah. when he said it, because I, I believed him. Yeah. I've been uh, following his Twitter pretty close throughout the week just to kind of see if there's any little behind the scenes moments that kind of trickle out. And uh, you can tell that, yeah, he was relishing every moment. Like he did not waste his opportunity to be on the 17th floor. He was uh, engaged. He was writing. He was there all night. He was doing what he needed to do to make sure the show was the best he could make it. Yeah. Obviously he brought his A game. I'm absolutely certain he wrote the monologue pretty much end to end. And if that wasn't enough to qualify him for MVP, the dude bought pizza for everyone in the standby line. Oh, did he? Yeah. He came down with a bullhorn and he came out and he shook hands and he walked the whole line and gave everyone a little moment and then shows up with a bunch of pizza. I think that was a really cool move on his part to come down and not just like be aloof and kind of be set back from them. Like he just got right in the line. He was hugging people and asking questions and just. He was just uh, being really cool. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So if that's not worthy of MVP, I don't know what is. So on a scale of classic, great, typical week or train wreck, where does this rank? Well, I have to apologize, (laughs) but I don't think I can give another classic rating to this as much as, you know, I was hooked on the episode and thought it was great. It just had too many uh, sketches that fell flat to make this overall a classic. I think I'm only giving it a great even because of Lin-Manuel Miranda's happiness to be there. And, sure. and you know. Yeah, the energy. There was enthusiasm to it. The enthusiasm that he had. That This is what makes it a great episode to yep. me. Okay. That's fair. I'm going to give it a solid great his enthusiasm to be there and his willingness to just jump into every sketch. I think it put it squarely in the great episode range. This is still going to be when we're looking back on the season as a whole, this is still going to be one that charmed us. You're right. It was uneven like most episodes of SNL. The only thing that's really bugging me is that I feel that overall I enjoyed this as much as the premiere. And I felt that Overall, even though the couple sketches that really felt weak and the one weekend update part that really felt weak, even though there were some obvious moments you could point to that these are the low points for the show, for whatever reason, I felt as engaged and excited and satisfied by this episode as I did the premiere. So I almost feel like it was a misstep for me to go full on classic with the last one. Cause I feel like I'm giving this one short shrift by saying the other one was classic. And this one is great when I feel like they were neck and neck, but you can't go back and revise after the fact or else what's the point in having the rating. Yeah. But here's the thing. Like I, I don't feel that way because while I enjoy, I enjoyed this episode just as much as the previous episode, I was enjoying 
this uh, most recent one because of a, a, a couple of really, really strong elements that were in it. Sure. Whereas the first one, I was, you know, impressed by the episode across the board in all terms. Yeah, it was more well-rounded. Exactly. So this uh, episode number two is just as enjoyable to me because it made up for his weakness in, in those other strong areas. Fair enough. To me, that's the difference between classic and great. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I think that's the smarter assessment. Sometimes I'll confuse my personal enjoyment of a show and divorce myself from some of the technical shortcomings of it. It's always hard to walk that line because sometimes you're just so enamored that you want to grade it higher than maybe it deserves. And that's probably what's going on here though. Okay. So that is a cast. Thanks to my guest, Steve Finn. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. And you can connect with us at snlafterparty.fm. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us to get the word out, and they're greatly appreciated. We'll be back in one week when SNL returns with host Emily Blunt and musical guest Bruno Mars. This has been episode number two of the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night, and have a pleasant tomorrow. Take you to 21 Pilots. Donald didn't hold up a little cup of his own semen at a rally and say, this becomes a person? No way. But he did say that. There's tape. What do you want me to say? Yes, he said that. He's crazy. Great. He's the worst person I've ever yes. known. What do you want? That's what I want. All right, well, thank you, Kellyanne Conway. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Us? Who's us? Hi, Jake. Kellyanne. Yeah, it's my day off. Hi.